scripture today will be taken from the book of John, uh, verses 1 to 18. And this is the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, and Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much, Elias. Friends, it's great to be back. We're going to continue our series today in the Gospel of John. Please turn there with me. Um, It will be helpful for you today actually to open your Bibles instead of just having the pamphlet because there's a few things in this text that I want to point out to you today, Um, especially if you have an ESV, but we're going to go through this text hopefully pretty deeply. Um, Again, I'm glad to be back with you. And as we go into this text, we need to remember the context of the whole Gospel of John. The context of the whole Gospel of John begins with a prologue. It sets up the whole book. And the prologue begins with the fact that there is this man named Jesus Christ, but Christ pre-existed himself. Before he became flesh, the Gospel of John says that he is the light of the world. He is the very light and life himself, God himself. And that the Gospel of John sets this up as him coming into the world and this light is being resisted by the world. There's a spiritual battle of light and dark such that all these events in the Gospel of John All of these conflicts that you're seeing, the debates that Jesus had with Nicodemus, the the, the wedding in Cana, the official son, the healing of that, the meeting with the Samaritan woman, these are not mere historical events. These are not merely uh, lucky chance encounters. These are depictions and events underlying which is a spiritual reality, a deeper spiritual battle between light and darkness. And the light is trying to save the darkness, but the darkness continues to be confused about it, continues to resist it, but ultimately cannot overcome it. 
And all the way throughout this gospel, Jesus is doing his ministry, he's doing his mission, and everybody misunderstands him. So in the wedding, right, in, in, in John chapter 2, in the wedding, he turned water into wine for another groom, for another bride. And everybody was joyous about that wine, missing the fact that the true groom who was anticipating his church was right there. And they were celebrating a different wedding. And when he talked to Nicodemus, Jesus told him that you need to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus thought, I can't be born again a second time. I can't go back to my mother's womb. Nicodemus thought that Jesus was talking about a physical uh, rebirth. And that's impossible. But Jesus was talking about a spiritual reality, a spiritual rebirth. You need to be born from above in the spirit for you to see the kingdom of God. He was trying to penetrate into a deeper reality, a deeper need. And in John chapter 4, we see that there was a Samaritan woman that Jesus encounters, and she was trying to draw normal water from the well. And Jesus is telling her, there's a deeper thirst that you need to have quenched. And I'm not going to provide you with a mere water from a well to, to a physical hunger or physical thirst. I am the living water himself, and you will worship in spirit and in truth, and all of your deepest shames will be covered. This is not about a physical cleansing it's about a deeper spiritual cleansing. And in the official son that we saw two weeks ago, Jesus did not merely heal the official son when the official was desperately asking for that. Jesus rebuked him first, encountered him first, challenged him first, and told him there's a deeper need. You and your family might have your son restored, but if this deeper need, if you don't believe in me, you will face something even worse. And so the whole house believed. You see, Jesus is after something deeper, but the world continues to reject him. The world continues to misunderstand. There's this God confusion and God rejection we see throughout the gospel, the darkness trying to overcome the light. And this passage continues that trajectory. And we need to read it in a lot of that. There's a battle here between superstition and Christianity. There's a battle here between an impersonal view of God and a personal view of God. There's a battle here between a false understanding of wellness and wholeness and healing from a true one. And ultimately, it points us to the deeper reality that God is making all things anew again in Jesus Christ. And we're going to dive into that passage today. There's three things we want to learn from this passage today. The first is this, that there's a difference between an impersonal and personal view of God. And second, that there's a difference between true and false healing. And finally, our last point is about our dependence upon Christ and the true wellness or healing that he brings. So first, the difference between a personal and impersonal view of God. Second, the difference between the true and false healing or wellness. Third, our complete dependence upon Christ and the real wellness or healing he brings. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded as we dive into this gospel once again, Lord God, that we too are either in the dark or we're in the dark. That when you came and you pursued us, we were resistant when you came and tried to show us our needs, we thought that our needs were elsewhere, that we were running a hell-bound race, Father, and we did not care. We thought that you were hindering us. We thought that you were uh, not a joy to us. But, Father, as we are now coming to this text, we are told, Father, that you continue to pursue no matter what, and that Christ brings to us a, a wellness and a healing that covers our deepest shames, a healing that covers something much deeper than our physical desires and needs. So, Father, 
help us understand this. May your spirit be here. Open our eyes. Uh, may we hear what we need to hear. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just got back to Jakarta about a month ago, and it's uh, incredible to me what I'm noticing again, right? Um, I've been in Edinburgh for a while, and before that I was in the States. And in Jakarta, I'm noticing a lot of economic development. It's really booming here. There's more buildings, right? New restaurants are coming up, new hotels. Everything is new. Everything is, you know, just massive and developing incredibly quickly. But at the same time, we're still in Asia. And I see this incredible mix of economic modern development on the one side and traditional Asian values on the other, really old uh, conservative values. And I can't help but notice that when you go to an apartment, when you go to a hotel, you don't see the number four. You just don't see it, especially if, if it's you know, maybe owned uh, maybe by a Chinese Indonesian company or whatever. You don't see the number four because the number four apparently symbolizes death. Um, and it's bad luck to go into an apartment building or a floor that has the number four on it. And if it's a house and there's a number four on it, it's never going to be sold because people think it's bad luck. If you enter into it, something bad will happen to you. And there's this incredible uh, cultural um, um, superstitious power around this number. But at the same time, we're, we're developing, right? But, but this is an incredible thing. This is, a, this is what I call superstition. Superstition is when you tether a, a particular divine spiritual force, a supernatural higher power to objects and things and entities like numbers or, or even places. Think about how maybe um, some people treat even Israel today. If you're a Christian, you might think that if you go to Israel, you're going to get some kind of a higher power, some kind of a deeper spiritual blessing. Or if you go to Peter's tomb in the Vatican and, and you touch it, you might think you might get some kind of higher spiritual power, some kind of blessing. You see, this is all superstitiousness. Superstition renders divine spiritual realities into an impersonal one, such that you tie causal efficacy or, or a causal relationship between doing something A and such a divine power or blessing comes out out of B. So if you touch Peter's tomb, boom, you get something uh, of a blessing. If you go to number four, uh, a building with a with floor, number four, you go there, you get negative spiritual powers on you, right? These are all superstitiousness. Superstition renders the divine powers impersonal. And this is exactly what's going on here today. Friends, uh, look at this, this pool here that all these people are gathered up to. This is a pool called Bethesda, with this, you know, five colonies, and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there and had been invalid for 38 years. This is verse 5. So there's this incredible pool, and apparently all these sick people are gathered around it, and they cannot wait to get into this pool. Why? Look at verse 7. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. What's he trying to say? Why are these people gathered there? These people are gathered there because they believe that if they just get into this pool first, they might get healed. They believe that this pool has some kind of a magical power. And in fact, you know, there's a myth around this pool. Historically, there's a popular myth about this pool that, that, that fuels this superstition. And this myth is this that a particular angel or, or divine being of some kind would come every now and then, stir up the pool, and the first person that comes into the pool when the water is stirred 
will be healed, no matter what it is. You might be blind, you might be deaf, you might be paralyzed, you might have some kind of illness, physical ailment, and yet, if you come to that pool and you're the first one there, you will be healed. And that's actually also found in verse 4. Look at your Bibles and go to verse 4. What do you find? Do you guys see a verse 4? No verse 4. What happened to verse 4? <laughs> it says verse 3 and then suddenly it's verse 5. What's up with that? That's kind of gnarly. Maybe you're an atheist in this room and you're like, see? The Bible's full of errors. What happened with that? Aren't you surprised, Christian? Shouldn't you tremble in fear? Well, no, not really. Um, just remember, just a quick note about this. We can talk about this after, so I don't want to stay too long about this, this little point that verse 4 is suddenly missing, right? Just remember that verses aren't in the original manuscripts. In the Greek, there are no verses. There are no chapter divisions. There are no, um, you know, all of these things that you see in your English Bibles are inserted by editors and translators. The verse numbers, even the little subtitles, you know, the healing at the pool of the Sabbath. Those are not there in the original Greek. And um, so what happened with this, the reason why verse 4 was taken out was because we have access to earlier manuscripts and later manuscripts. And in all the earlier manuscripts of the Gospel of John, verse 4 isn't there. Only in the later manuscripts did it come. And, and to make a really long story short, if you're a scribe and you are copying Greek manuscripts, you want to explain to the people more rather than erasing things away from the text. So when scribes saw this and they thought, people need to know this popular myth about this pool. You can't just mention in the Gospel of John that there's this pool and everybody is like filing up to, to go into that pool when you don't know the myth about it. And so a particular scribe or many scribes decided to insert a little explanation mark. It's actually in parentheses. This is the myth about this pool. And an angel of the Lord would come and stir this up and the first one into the pool would do that. And in fact, if you have ASV, verse 4 is in the footnotes. And this is why I wanted you to open that. But we can talk about that. And that's you know, just, just, just Christian. Do not be afraid of textual variance. It's okay. In fact, most textual variants are very minute and very small, and they don't really sense, they don't really change the theological meaning of the particular texts. Don't be afraid. No Christian scholar is surprised by it. And if you watch things on the History Channel that tries to make up, you know, some kind of crazy thing that the Bible is composed and is so different, and we have so many different versions of the Gospel of John, don't believe it. The changes and anyway, we can talk about that after. We can talk about that after. And you can ask me all sorts of things, and I'll tell you all about the method, and we can go through the Greek together if you want to. But, um, but, but so notice that there's a superstitiousness around this pool. There's a superstitiousness around this pool, and they thought that th this pool could give them healing, access to divine power. And notice the causal relationship, that if you do A, B will definitely happen. If you do A, in other words, if you, if you go into the pool, you will definitely be healed. You can access the power of God in a particular time when the pool is stirred, you will definitely be healed. And that's a kind of superstition. That's a kind of superstition. And what is superstition again? It makes the divine power impersonal. It makes the power of God impersonal. Why? Because you sense or you think that you can access or you can get divine power 
without divine willing. There's just a mechanical relationship there. If you push a button, God does something. And this could come in really subtle ways. It could come in really subtle ways. Do you believe that if you pray at a certain hour of day, God will bless you more? That praying at 5 a.m. makes you a better prayer than someone who prays at 6 p.m.? Do you believe that that particular hour has a particular power to, to affect something? Do you believe that if you go to a home and you don't see any crucifixes, then that home is less blessed? As if divine power could be tethered to wooden objects. Do you believe that if you touch something, something bad will happen to you, inevitably? Even if it's something creepy like a voodoo doll. What do you believe about divine power? Do you believe that you can, in other words, get the power of God without God willing it? As if God is some kind of impersonal spiritual force, a fuel that you could tap into at any moment without him willing it. And notice here the irony. Notice here the irony. All of these invalid people, you know, signs of sin, right? If you're sick, if death and sickness comes after the fall, signs of darkness, all of these dark symptoms gathered up around this pool thinking that they're going to get this impersonal force and power when the very person of God himself was walking amongst them. And you could almost imagine the scene, all these people lining up towards this pool, Jesus was walking around them and they didn't even notice him maybe. And when Jesus goes to this man and asks him a question whether or not he wants to be well, he thinks it's still about the pool. He's still saying, I can't get into the pool. Oh, the irony of saying that to life himself. And what's the juxtaposition? What's the contrast? On the one hand, you have an impersonal pool, thinking that you might get an impersonal force that heals you. On the other is a personal God. A personal God who what? Has a will. A personal God who is free. A personal God who selects this man out of many. A personal God who walks. A personal God who asks a question. A personal God that encounters you and makes sure that you know it's under his terms, his conditions. He decides whether or not you might be healed. He decides whether or not you might be addressed. He decides whether or not you might get to know him. You don't get to control how God's power gets affected upon you. We don't get to control how God saves you. God saves on his own terms and his own conditions. You know, it's amazing to me if you read um, accounts of the early church, especially after the resurrection of Christ in the first 300 years or so, and, you know, Christianity flourished in uh, the Roman Empire. And the Roman culture in that time was a deeply polytheistic culture. They believed in many gods. So Tezar was talking about how there's a sun god, there's a fertility god, all sorts of gods. And they would argue that to thrive, they need to gather around many different gods. So when they conquer a land and they see all their statues and all their temples, they would say, we need to take over those gods. Because we conquered this land, their land's gods will now fight for us. So they would argue... You want, to be, uh, you want to enjoy more rain? You do this to the rain god. You want to enjoy more sun? You do this to the sun god. 
you, you bow down three times or you touch a statue. You know, they even have little statue goddesses. If you go to particular cities in the Roman era, little statue goddesses that you could put in your pocket. Um, um, that kind of, kind of an amulet that, that keeps you safe. All these sort of things. And when Christianity first came about, let me say, they thought that we were atheists. We were accused of many things in the early church. We were accused of, um, believe it or not, cannibalism, because we talked about eating the Lord's body and blood. We were accused of incest, because we called each other brothers and sisters, and we spent a lot of time in people's homes. Um, we were also called atheists. Why? Because when the Roman people entered into our houses of worship, they said, where are the statues? When the Roman people said, you need to go to a particular place and play, pay your homages to the gods so that we would win this war, Christians say, there's no pilgrimage. We worship in spirit and truth. When Roman people said, once you go back to Jerusalem where your temple is, Christians said, I could worship Christ anywhere. So Roman people were perplexed. Where are your gods? We're atheists to them. But you see, we were not atheists. We were just emphasizing what? The transcendence and incredible power of God and his complete and utter freedom. God cannot be tethered to particular objects or things as if he's an impersonal force. He is a free God. And he will do what he pleases. And notice here, let's just go to my second point. A lot of things I could have said there. Notice the irony again, that Christ, who is a personal God, walking right amongst them, and they think that the impersonal divine force was elsewhere. And, and notice here, my second point is between the true and a false healing. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, this is again, a man who's been sick and, and paralyzed 38 years. He's been there maybe every year trying to get into this pool. Nobody could carry him up there. And he asks a loaded question. Do you want to be healed? And this man immediately, what does he think? I'm paralyzed. I need this physical healing, right? But I want us to note, friends, that this word healed is an ambiguous word. There are different words in the original language that could signify physical healing. But this word here could mean different things. It could mean physical healing, sure. But it could also mean well. Some translators might say that it could also mean sound. You have, you have a sound mind, for example. You have a sound understanding. It could also mean whole. So Calvin in the 16th century translated this as, do you want to be made whole? Paralyzed man thought, I want my legs, right? I, I want to be made whole. Of course I want to be made whole. But notice the ambiguity of the word. And if you've been through our sermons, you've been through the Gospel of John, you know that Christ is always after something deeper, a spiritual reality that penetrates through the merely imminent. And notice, Jesus heals him. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and took up his bed and walked. Notice what Jesus says when he finds him later in verse 14. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, then nothing worse may happen to you. Sin no more, then nothing worse may happen to you. 
It's almost like an irony, right? Jesus is saying to him, you seem to be well, but don't you see? If you keep sinning, something worse might happen to you. But friends, what could be worse than paralysis? What could be worse than paralysis? What could be worse than this? What kind of physical thing? I don't think Jesus was talking about a physical disease here anymore. I think he's talking about the deeper reality that your physical illness, your paralysis, wasn't actually your main issue. If you keep sinning, you thought your paralysis was bad? You thought that that was your deepest need? No. If you keep sinning, something much worse may happen to you. But notice, this man was healed, right? This man was cured. This is a miraculous thing. He just got up and walked, and he was paralyzed for 38 years. There's no way that this is just a, a natural phenomenon. He experienced a miracle from Christ himself. But I want us to notice something crucial in the next verse. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And look at verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. You know, the Jewish custom and law says that you can't work on the Sabbath, so you can't heal, apparently, on the Sabbath. You can't pick up your mat or your bed. It's pretty heavy. And walk. This is considered a crime. And when this man, who just experienced this healing, was encountered by the Pharisees, was encountered by the Jews, incriminating against him, what did the man do? Look at verse 11. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. He says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Notice the emphasis. Who is it? Why are you taking your bed and walk? What did this paralyzed man who was now healed do? He shifted the blame. He didn't say, this is an incredible work of God. He didn't say, this is an incredible miracle. Don't you see that this is life himself? He didn't repent. What did he do? He was healed. He got a miracle. And what? He still rejected Jesus. He shifted the blame. That man, that guy commanded me to do this. This is not me. I didn't want to just do this and pick it up. I, I didn't want to be healed. I didn't ask for this. That man did this. Don't incriminate against me. Go after him. And look at verse 15. The moment he found out that it was Jesus who healed him, the first thing he does is he went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus. And look at verse 16. It says, this was why the Jews were persecuting him. He was reported. Friends, you might come here, and we might come here, and we might think this in our heads today, and we may be struggling with something really deep. And here might be our mindset. Lord, I want to believe in you, but I'm sick. Just give me a sign. Lord, I want to believe in you, just show me some evidence. Show me a miracle. Lord, I want to believe in you, but I've been to church so many weeks and I see nothing supernatural. If you're saying that, you're actually saying, if only you show me something tangible and physical, something miraculous and incredible and supernatural, I will definitely believe. And what is this text saying? 
If you do not believe Jesus at his word, no miracle could change your mind. The problem is not something external. The problem is not something with your sight. The problem is not something that is, that is tangible before you. The problem is your heart. And God could do 10,000 miracles in front of you. What did the Israelites do in the book of Exodus? The Israelites were taken out of Egypt, and what? They saw a Red Sea split in front of them. What's the next thing they did? Worshipped? They grumbled. They grumbled against God. Take us back to Egypt. We are more comfortable there. I don't like being in the wilderness. What? And we might come here and say, if only I was there. If only I was there when I saw Jesus feed the 5,000 with two fish and five loaves of bread. If only I was there to witness the Red Sea crossing. If only I was there when these miracles happened. I would definitely believe. And what is Jesus saying? If you don't take me at my word, which is sufficient for you, you would never accept me either way. No miracle can change the human heart except an internal work of God. No external power can change you except an internal work of God, the freedom of God's grace that will transform you from the inside out. And this is ample proof of it. What is Jesus saying? You thought you are well? Sin no more. And what's the next thing this man did? Rejected Christ and reported him. Friends, may we see our deeper problem. Do you see that? Do you see the evils of our own heart? Do you actually desire God for himself or do you desire something else? You know, it's amazing to me. Um, we talk to different people maybe in the city and we, we, we get, you know, feedback and we get critiqued a lot. And um, it's interesting to me that, that, that the kind of rhetoric that I hear about what people believe church is is that when you preach, or they, they suddenly give you advice, right? Or, you know, we get, a, and sometimes they're really good advice. We hear feedback from people and we really do want to listen. But at times, people say this, and I have the tendency to say this we need to change our messages and our sermons so that it meets the needs of the people. It helps people. It doesn't matter if your sermon's doctrinal, it doesn't matter if it's textual. What are the people wrestling with? You address that. And there's a real sense of truth to that. You want your sermons to actually really hit our lives. We want our sermons and our messages every Sunday, not merely as a worship service unto God, but as a way that, that the people of God could be nourished and really feel the presence of God. But I want to make a distinction here between felt needs and real needs. If we modify our sermons to address felt needs, suddenly our sermons would sound like what? People would say, well, nobody is thinking about some pool in Bethesda, Gray. Nobody's thinking about that. You know what people are wrestling with? People are wrestling with political realities. People are really anxious about Donald Trump. People are really anxious about their marriages. People are really anxious about the, the economic political situation. And suddenly we have sermons that says five ways to develop your marriage or five ways to develop your business or how kingdom principles can make your business a thriving one. Felt needs and real needs are very different. Friends, you might feel that your need is elsewhere. You might feel that your need right now is that you're sick or you're wrestling with something financial, you're wrestling with a relationship, and it might seem daunting to you, and I don't want to undermine that one second. But if we don't get to the core root 
of our real needs, a need that you might not even know about. We have failed as a church. We have failed as teachers of God's word. And this is what Christ is doing. If he merely is just accommodating to this, he would not be the savior of the world. He would not. He would be, again, like Tazar said two weeks ago, a mere miracle worker. Someone who heals physical things. But that's not what he is here for. There's a real wellness. Do you want to be made whole? Last point. Last point. Our absolute dependence on Christ and the real wellness that he brings. He healed on the Sabbath. Christ heals on the Sabbath and they were persecuting him because of that. What does the Sabbath mean? What was it actually for? You see, the Jews made these laws around the Sabbath because what? They made the Ten Commandments as a way to actually get God's righteousness, to actually get God's favor, to earn it again, as a way to get God's love for them, as if it's kind of a point system, right? But you see, the Ten Commandments were not given ever for you to earn God's favor. The Ten Commandments are supposed to be guidelines, yes, but they're primarily to show you that you are absolutely dependent upon God. You shall have no other gods before Him. Why? Because God is the one who would meet your real needs. You, you, you will not dishonor His name, take His name in vain. Why? Because His name is the power that saves. You will observe the Sabbath. Why? Because six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall remember that you shall enjoy the fruits of your labors, not because it is of you, not because you're so hardworking, not because you're just a better person. You shall enjoy the fruits of your labors because I am the one who provides in the first place. And without me, you would have never enjoyed anything. You would never even be able to work. So on the seventh day, we come to church, we rest from our daily labors because we understand, Lord, the world could keep running without me. I don't need to work today because I know things are going to be okay. You are in control. And you see, when God rested on the seventh day, he didn't rest from governing the world. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son of God upholds all things by his word. If God were to stop working, we would literally cease to exist. Everything is upheld by him. He sees not from working, simply working, but he, he sees from the work of creation, but he continues to preserve, he continues to govern, he continues to uphold all things by the power of his word. And so the Sabbath is supposed to remind us, friends, your true salvation comes from God. Your true works come from God. Everything comes from God, and today you can rest because you understand, friends, that Christ has died, and he has lived for you, and he has made you well. You can rest. It's okay. All of your anxieties, your deepest shames, they've been covered. And Sabbath points to something, even, it doesn't just point us to our absolute dependence upon Christ and that it is his work, it's his personal power, not this impersonal pool or this magical power. It is not that at all. We're absolutely dependent upon him and not on anything else. But further, what is the Sabbath principle? Turn your Bibles to 
Hebrews chapter 4, just really quickly. The book of Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 9 to 10. We could spend a long time in this chapter, but let me just point this out to you. The Sabbath principle and the command is not merely a weekly reminder that we're absolutely dependent upon God, but the Sabbath is a foretaste of a future rest. Look at verses 9 and 10 in Hebrews chapter 4. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. And look at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Sabbath is not merely a weekly principle that you go through every week to remind yourself you're dependent on him. It is also something future. And what is that? It's a future time where you can rest and you can feel that everything is okay. It's a future time where things are running the way they're supposed to be and God is pleased. God, when he first created everything, what did he say? It is very good. But we messed it up. And in Genesis 6, God says, why did I create? Everyone has become evil. But this future Sabbath rest is a time again where God can look at the new city, the new heavens and the new earth, and he can finally say, it is whole. It is very good. I am pleased with this. And what kind of place is that? It's a place where there will be no more blind or lame or paralyzed. There will be no more suffering, poverty, or disease. There will be no more sin, no more evil, no temptations. There will be no more serpent lurking around in the dark trying to deceive. There will be only truth, light, and life. And Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I am working. And what is he working for? What is he working toward? That final rest. That final rest. This is the true and absolute wellness that we crave and we need. And friends, I want us to understand this. When you read the Gospels and you read these miracles that Jesus do, that Jesus does, sorry. Notice now that Jesus never does a miracle for a miracle's own sake. He's not some show magician. He's not just a physical healer. He not only shows the deeper need, but not only this, he came as what? The king in life himself, and he came and he's working for what? A future Sabbath rest. His miracles of healing a paralyzed man, even though this paralyzed man resists him, the light shines in darkness, and the darkness tries to overcome it, right? But the light is still faithful anyway. These miracles are done by Jesus to show you a foretaste of what the final day will be like when the paralyzed will be no more, when you can now walk again, when sin will be no more. I was at a wonderful, beautiful wedding yesterday, and um, my friends tell me, Gary, I've never seen you this happy before. Um, I've never seen you this happy before, Gray. Why are you so happy? And I love weddings, I really do. I get that way, especially if it's a wedding of, a, of one of my best friends, you know, and, and I'm really 
thankful to see everything. It was such a beautiful, Christ-centered, worshipful evening. And I was just happy from morning till night. And I was incredibly happy. And, um, you know, I, we were joking around, and I was trying to explain that, you know, weddings like that, it's a time for us to, to be merry and truly be joyous. Why? Because there's nothing deeper. There's no deeper reality. There's no human, physical, ordinance, creational event that points to a deeper reality than weddings. Why? Because in the last day, Christ will come back and he will take back his church as his bride. The physical human weddings of today point to a deeper reality later. And they're not just a pointer. They're a foretaste of what the happiness you feel, the emotions that you feel, the tears that you cried on that day. It's a little foretaste of what will happen, the kind of joy that you will feel when Christ returns. It's a foretaste of this. Friends, it's an intrusion of the final day. You could feel the joyousness of the final day a little bit in that day. And I want us to close with this exhortation for you. Why are we now people in a church enjoying Sabbath rest? We're not only enjoying the future foretastes today. We're not only enjoying the future pleasures in some shadowy way today. What? We are also called, like Christ, to be the lights of the world. That what? When people meet us, they can be reminded that there is a wellness and a wholeness that they need and crave. That when people meet us, when we are really functioning as a covenant church for this city, for this culture, a culture within a culture that functions under a different king, a different ethic, a different rule altogether, there's a poise to us, there's a balancedness to us, there's a patience about us, we're about racial reconciliation, we care about the mercy ministry, we, we care about poverty, we care about the real issues of life, not just our felt needs. People will say, what is this community about? And friends, this is why we are called a priesthood of God. This is why we're called citizens of what? The future kingdom. Such that when people meet us, just as when they encounter Jesus and his miracles, they did not merely encounter a mere miracle, they were encountering signs of the future kingdom. Can people meet us and people say, this is a higher ethic. This is a higher joy. This is a higher happiness. May we be the people of God that not only enjoy the wellness and the wholeness of our sins being forgiven and our absolute dependence upon Christ, the rest that comes from that, the balance that comes from that, such that we, we deplore our idols and, and, and all superstition, but that we might be the people that others would see and say, these are the citizens of a future reality. These are the people of God, an intrusion of the future into the present. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've worked and you continue to work today. That we continue to be dependent on you, Father, because the moment we try to rely and depend on ourselves, we have no hope. We have no rest. We have no wholeness. We have but parts, but we cannot be made whole. We thank you, Lord God, that you point to a deeper need and that you fill that need, that you don't merely accommodate to our felt needs, but you, you penetrate much deeper into the real 
desires of our hearts. That is union with Christ. We cannot wait for the final future rest. And until that day, Father, we walk by faith and not by sight. Help us be faithful people, therefore, such that we can witness that future kingdom. And the nations shall rejoice when they see the people of God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.